Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to win the climate chess game, you've got to look at the whole board, not just the solar panel squares. You look at the entire board, and you've got to look at all the pieces. So it's kind of like, a, you know, in one dimension of the board, you have all the solutions, and on the other, you have all the levers to make them bigger. Now play that chess game. What's your opening move? How do you get to checkmate? And it's going to take time, but you get to have a lot of different pieces moving together. At the end of the day, addressing climate change avoids some of the biggest societal and environmental disasters and economic disasters we could even imagine we're heading towards a world that is out of control, where natural disasters and so on would be just omnipresent. It'll make the COVID epidemic look like a cakewalk by comparison if we do nothing. We do nothing. We do nothing. That's Dr. Jonathan Foley. And this is the Plant Proof Podcast. Beautiful friends, welcome back to another episode. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. I hope that you've been keeping well. For new listeners, I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Where I'm sitting right now, there would be about a kilometer of ice over my head if the planet were two to three degrees colder. If it's two to three degrees warmer, we might have an equivalent change to the planet in the other direction, and we don't even know what that would look like. It sure as heck wouldn't be very friendly to our current society that's built on the climate that we used to have, where our cities are, where our seawalls are, where we grow our food, where we get our water, how our planet works will be fundamentally different even with two degrees warmer, let alone three, four or five degrees warmer, which is where we'd be headed if we don't start to address climate change. 93% of Americans now accept to some degree or another that climate change is real, that we're causing it. And we should do something about it. 90-something percent. That's incredible. Well, now what do we do about it? A lot of the things we need to do to fix climate change are things that are good for us. They create jobs. They improve health. They improve areas of inequity and injustice that have been around for years. They make us healthier and so on. One of the things that's very important to know is that there's no one solution to climate change. You have solutions and levers. And levers are the things that society does to make solutions more, uh, to get bigger and to happen more quickly. So those include policy change, like, you know, governments setting different goals and incentivizing and disincentivizing different things by changing the rules. You know, what's in the law? What are your tax codes? What are, you know, uh, subsidies government makes? You know, what are, what are things that the government might do deliberately in terms of policy? At local, state, international, national levels, all the different levels of governance. So that's a really big area. Uh, individual behavior is also important, too, at the kind of bottom of the spectrum. We've got really big levers like government policy all the way to you and me. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the things that affect climate change are still up to individual discretion, like our uh, dietary choices, food waste, where we choose to invest our money, where we shop, 
what we buy, how we buy it, when we recycle something, the kind of homes we aspire to buy and how we run them. All those things are also influenced by our individual decision-making. And then there's a lot of stuff in between, like um, how businesses are behaving. That's really important. If they only care about short-term profits, they're unlikely to do things that help with climate change and down the road. We also need technology investments in things that really matter. We also need uh, capital to move trillions of dollars, need to come out of things like coal and industrial agriculture, for example, and into things like renewables, regenerative agriculture, for example, or um, better diets, other things that people care about. We also need to move labor out of, you know, unfortunately means displacing labor. There are people who mine coal for a living right now or ranch cattle for a living right now who might need to find other lines of work. That's going to be very difficult. But those are the kinds of changes we need. And those, those are the levers we talk about, kind of a policy, capital, labor, technology, business behavior, and individual behavior. Those are kind of the levers we get to pull to make these solutions all get bigger. So, you know, I, I think about a really big chessboard. So I think about like seeing the whole board they talk about in chess. Like, okay, um, if you want to win the climate chess game, you've got to look at the whole board, not just the solar panel squares. You look at the entire board and you've got to look at all the pieces. So it's kind of like, a, you know, in one dimension of the board, you have all the solutions and on the other, you have all the levers to make them bigger. Now play that chess game. What's your opening move? How do you get to checkmate? And it's going to take time, but you get to have a lot of different pieces moving together. And nobody should pretend this is all going to be pleasant for everyone. But at the end of the day, addressing climate change avoids some of the biggest societal and environmental disasters and economic disasters we could even imagine. So we know that if we don't address climate change, we're heading towards a world that is out of control, where disasters, natural disasters and so on would be just omnipresent, where financial calamity, I mean, it'll make the COVID epidemic look like a cakewalk by comparison, is the world we'd be heading to if we do nothing. And we can't stand that. We, we just cannot have that. So we have to turn course. And yes, that means some industries that are maybe disproportionately polluting to climate change need to change. And um, I think it's only fair that we help at least the kind of working class people in those industries, not the, not the shareholders and the CEOs. They're going to be fine. But the coal miners and ranchers and farmers and others who may have to change what they're doing or how they're doing it, and maybe, you know, change to something better, hopefully better for them too. But we have to think as society as a whole, and we don't, you know, subsidize wagon wheel makers and buggy whip makers in the past. Sometimes society has to move on to the next kind of way of doing things. And that, and that is hard. We should recognize that and not be glib about it, uh, but also not let it slow us down because, you know, we're talking about seven and a half billion people have to live on this planet. We can't be held hostage by just the fossil fuel companies. I think it's a mistake to look to national governments as the leaders on climate solutions. They're not, usually. Um, it might be cities, it might be business, it might be other community organizations that are really leading. And together, they have an effect nationally. But you know, a lot of the innovation is happening kind of locally and then scaling up to the national scale in different countries. But it, what's fascinating is there's over 40 countries in the world that have already peaked their emissions and are heading down. Now, we have to get to, to zero. That's going to be the hard part. But right now, the uh, leading country in the world on reducing their emissions is the UK. Uh, the UK actually peaked their emissions back in the 1980s, and they're now 40% below that peak, even though the UK economy and, and population have both grown considerably. In the United States, where I live, um, we peaked our emissions in 2007. 
Uh, they are already, before COVID, about 17% below that already, even though the economy of the U.S. had grown during that time a lot. And this last year, it went down another 10%, probably, but that's fairly temporary, I think, due to the pandemic. The question is, what will happen after the pandemic? Will it boost back up again? Or does it, does it become a kind of a phase change where the economy that comes back after recession will have built-in incentives to be more efficient, to have investments in better technology? Do we finally get rid of coal? Do we finally get into efficiency? Do we finally get into EVs? Fortunately, after the big recession in 2008 and now this one in 2021, we have leadership in America, at least, that is very pro-climate solutions uh, with President Obama just taking the helm and now President Biden. Uh, I think we're very fortunate as we're rebuilding these economies here that we have um, some of the most aggressive climate policy the U.S. has ever seen. This happened in the last month. So there's some good news there. Nordic countries, a lot of European countries are doing pretty well. I think Japan's doing well. China hit peak emissions last year. But how much of that was COVID versus what was already a gradual change? We don't know yet. So there is some, you know, interesting early moves happening that are good, but not enough. We have a lot more to go. There are many, many things I think we could do in the near term. For example, the best opening moves right now would be around efficiency. Energy efficiency in the electricity sector, for sure buildings, and transportation. Those three right there are huge opportunities for still big efficiency wins that could happen today. But then in food and agriculture, food waste is another huge area. About 30 to 40% of the world's food supply is never eaten at all. And in our analysis, consistently ranks near the top of climate solutions as one of the most effective things we can do. And I've never met anybody from the pro-food waste lobby. I don't know who that is. Um, I think we all could benefit by reducing food waste. We just don't seem to be investing in it or know quite where to begin, but there are places. Then we could focus on things like methane releases because methane does all of its warming in the first 10 to 20 years after it's emitted, where CO2 does a lot of the warming for centuries. So when we reduce methane emissions, it has a big effect right now that could buy us a little bit more time to get rid of other emissions that have a longer term effect. So that would be in both in agriculture, but also especially in the natural gas industry. Fixing the leaks, fugitive emissions, flaring, things like this are really, really important fracking. Uh, but two thirds of the emissions of methane on the planet are from livestock and rice paddies, but mostly livestock. We can't ignore that. Anyway, so there are a lot of early wins we could have. Also, stopping deforestation, that would be another big win. Deforestation is still about 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions, more than most countries. Be the third largest emitter in the world if it were a country is just deforestation. And a lot of that's happening in the tropics, and a lot of it is for beef, animal feed, and palm oil. So it's actually fairly targeted. If you look at Indonesia, Brazil, and a handful of other countries, and a few big commodities, you've got a big lever of action right there, too. Most of the water we touch in our lives is actually in the form of food. So that's something that's very, very important. So again, that's where eating less meat and less dairy is the biggest thing we can do for water always is our diets. And uh, kind of more plant-rich diets helps with carbon, it helps with land, it helps with biodiversity, and it helps a lot with water. So that's the biggest thing we can do. The second biggest, though, is probably our own little gardens outside, uh, lawns and landscaping, things we might irrigate, depending on what kind of climate you live in. If you're watering grass and flowers and things like this, make sure, you know, maybe using drip irrigation, building up the soil, things like that are really, really crucial. And then you go indoors, and that's going to be even less, but it'll be things like low-flow toilets, shower fixtures, things like this, low-flow, um, you know, very energy-efficient washing machines, dishwashers, things like this are also water-efficient usually. So they use less water and less energy. And with hot water, you get the double win of using less water, but also less 
less energy to make it hot. So um, those are all important things. But, you know, uh, food is the first biggest thing we do. Second would be our landscaping. And third would be kind of you know, like toilets to dishwashers, washing machines, things like this. In terms of where our water comes from, that's something as individuals we have very little say over. But it's always, always, always more efficient and cheaper and better to be more uh, conserve water than to talk about desalination plants or something like that, which are going to be very expensive and very, very uh, fraught with uh, delays and technology problems. So let's conserve water and be smarter about it and waste less of it is always the best thing to do, whether it's food, water, or energy. Waste less, use it better. In the United States, the analyses I've seen shows that if we got rid of feedlots, we'd only have about one-tenth as much beef production capacity in this country unless we started clear-cutting forests everywhere. So there's, you know, there's just not enough grazing land to grow regeneratively the beef supply of the U.S. Like the feedlots are growing a lot of it. And uh, grass is um, not able to keep up with that. When I think about beef, I think, like, let's, first of all, waste none. <laughs> let's not waste any beef, regardless of how we grow it. That would be a good win for everybody. I argue we have to eat a lot less of it and be maybe pay, maybe pay more for it and make it special like it really is. And then grow it on grass um, and do it as regeneratively as possible. I love that idea. But I think you have to do all three. I think the idea that Americans or Australians can eat a lot of beef all the time with its health implications, the doctors tell us it's not healthy to eat that much, and the resource constraints, the amount of land it needs, and so it's just not sustainable. Let's dial it down and let's see if the regenerative folks can actually meet the demand. Right now, regenerative can't even meet 1% of the world's food supply. How are they going to suddenly do 100% overnight in a way that's unproven? And nobody's going to flip a switch and make the world vegan. These are these arguments about like is vegan better or regenerative better are kind of silly because there's no there's no autocrat telling the world you shall all eat lentils from now on. <laughs> We're going to have meat. So I would love to say, well, why don't we make it a little less, waste less, and help the regenerative and organic folks do a better job of meeting that demand? It's kind of win win. So I, I'd like to see more innovation in eating more plants, making plants tastier, maybe maybe even plant-based substitutes wherever we can. And then for people to still choose to eat some meat, okay, great, whatever. Um, not you know, We'll debate that. But if we do do that, let's grow it in the most humane and environmentally sustainable way we can, which I think the regenerative folks have a good kind of line on some of that. But I don't think there's any one absolute solution here. Uh, we're going to have to kind of work together where, you know, vegans and plant-based meat folks and regenerative ranchers and all the rest are actually on the same team. I'm really tired of them fighting with each other when we're actually trying to accomplish similar goals of like, how do we live more sustainably on this planet? And also realize we're not going to convince everybody else to live exactly the way we want them to. So how do we get along? I mean, regenerative um, agriculture can include growing plants too, by the way. Regenerative cropping, you know, like growing vegetables and fruits regeneratively is a really good idea. But yeah, this regenerative ranching community, there have been a few outspoken organizations that have, I think, very, very sadly cherry-picked a handful of numbers and extrapolated them to the entire world and then claimed, we can absorb all the greenhouse gases on our ranches. That is utter nonsense. And anybody who's actually really looked at soil science knows that that's not true. It is part of a climate solution, but along with many other parts. That's not a silver bullet. Just don't think of it as the single solution to climate change. It's not. It might not even be a solution at all. It might just be less harmful because there's still methane coming from cattle. But I'll take less harmful. Less harmful is a good step. Uh, across the United States, um, we have 100 million acres of corn, uh, about 80 million acres of soybeans. Other than ethanol, what is that for? That is animal feed. So most of the world's giant monocultural crops are animal feed. Uh, so we're using like 1% of them to make some you know, plant-based stuff. 
or tofu or whatever too. Like that's nothing compared to the monocultures that are already in the animal agricultural world. And don't forget, you know, 76% of all the farmland on earth that's in agriculture is used to do one thing, grow meat or the plants that animals eat. So that is a just crazy kind of claim that, oh, because they use soya products in an Impossible Burger, therefore they're contributing to monocultural big ag. Like compared to a conventional hamburger, are you kidding me? That's not even close. And what I like about the Impossible and Beyond thing is like they could make it out of other proteins. And I don't see vast monocultures of peas on this planet from space. You know, there's not hundreds of millions of acres of peas being grown or, you know, chickpeas or something like that. So I think we can kind of dial down the rhetoric there. That's just kind of nonsense. Compare, I mean, the, the conventional beef industry is such a gigantic, big ag, monocultural footprint of, you know, GMO soybeans, GMO corn being fed to feedlot beef. That's what you're comparing it to. That's the average hamburger. Compare that to an Impossible Burger. I don't think that's fair. I'm all for better, whatever it is. And so if we can farm, you know, traditional meat better, great, let's do that. I think we're going to have to farm it better and eat less of it. And if we can meet up some of the demand for that with plant-based alternatives, that's great. And in 10 years, we'll have lots of those things. Let's see. The only viable paths to stopping climate change put most of the effort in stopping pollution before it gets in the atmosphere, not tricks to pull it out again later. And we love those tricks. We've been talking about them for years. Um, we call that Today, we call it direct air capture. 30 years ago, we used to call it clean coal. It's still BS. 30 years ago, we used, in agriculture, we called it no-till. Now we're calling it regenerative. Same problem. Instead of stopping the emissions before they get in the atmosphere, we're letting them go into the atmosphere and then pretending we'll take them out again later. It's sort of borrowing, you know, the future against the present. But there's no guarantee that those machines or agricultural practices will, one, work, two, that they'll ever be big enough, that they're permanent, and that they're verifiable, and that they're what they're called additional. That is, they're bigger than what would happen anyway. We may need machines like this. I'm not against that, but I, I am against it if it becomes a distraction or an excuse to continue polluting. If this is just another excuse to keep burning fossil fuels or keep eating too much meat or whatever, oh, but we'll, we'll offset those emissions with machines or soils or trees. I'm like, no, I love soils and trees. Let's go do all that we want. That's fantastic. But don't make that part of your climate solution. You got to shut down your damn emissions anyway. And then go plant the trees and the soils too. But don't let it be a credit against stopping emissions that we know how to stop today. There's a study just published yesterday from Harvard University that shows that about 8 million people a year die prematurely from the air quality problems of fossil fuel burning. And most of that stuff is happening in poorer communities and communities of color. But if we just say, oh, but don't worry about that, we're just going to suck out the CO2 someplace else. And yet we're still burning, you know, um, in mining natural gas and coal and oil. What did we just do there? You know, we, we just still, we didn't solve the bigger problem. It's like, we need to get rid of fossil fuels period, because even if we could fix the climate aspect of their kind of damage to the planet, we didn't do anything to the environmental injustices they cause or local environmental issues they cause or air pollution that affects lungs and lives. That didn't get changed at all. So again, that's another reason these things could become a real distraction from doing what's really necessary. All cars have batteries, first of all, and battery technology is not perfect that uh, we do still have um, some pretty nasty materials being used in the mining and construction of building batteries. That's true. 
But compared to uncontrolled pollution that goes in the atmosphere and affects everywhere in, in a way that we can never clean up, I'd much rather have my pollution on the ground in one location than in the sky forever, changing the entire planet. So I, I don't think that's a very viable argument. The cleaning up battery technology is a far easier problem than fixing climate change. Some people argue, oh, the, it took extra energy to make the battery. Therefore, um, the carbon benefits of driving electric cars never manifest because of all the energy it took to build the car. That's not true either. After a few thousand kilometers of driving an electric car compared to a petrol car, you've more than paid for the difference of the cost of building the car. So uh, they are very, very, very clearly a win for the environment. Uh, yet we still do have to be mindful of how we obtain, construct, and recycle battery components like everything else in a car. But how, do, how is that different than a petroleum-based car, which already has a battery and all sorts of, you know, has Bluetooth and cell phone things in it that all have the same problem? So um, we just have to solve that problem. And um, But with an electric car, we have to solve that problem, but we get the benefit of addressing climate change, which petroleum cars will never do. Also, petroleum cars have to have things like catalytic converters that use, you know, heavy metals like, you know, uh, very expensive ones and catalytic converters to clean up their air pollution. In fact, in the U.S. lately, it's been a new wave of crime where people are going underneath your car and ripping out the catalytic converter and selling them because they have uh, precious metals in them that can go, you know, have pretty good street value. Electric cars don't have catalytic converters because they don't emit anything. Um, so that's another kind of environmental win. So there's pluses and minuses to all technologies. Nothing is going to be a free lunch. But uh, overall, the electric car is a far, far better environmental proposition, if you're being honest about it. Um, but, the, but, you know, there are other considerations of, like, your money. Uh, if you, the car you have is paid for and you're just driving it for a while and it's reliable, hell, do that. Um, you know, we can't – environmental decision-making isn't the only thing we're basing our decisions on, of course – um, but I think it's just when it's time to get the next vehicle, please consider something much more fuel efficient or electric. Uh, but a lot of the electric might be up to the capacity of recharging stations in your area and what you like and what you can afford. I mean, you know, it's going to take a little time, uh, but the bit more we can do in that, the better. But nobody should be feeling too guilty about it. This is still something where individual actions can help, but we don't have all the options open to us yet. They're only going to get better and do what you can. Personal actions alone definitely will not solve the problem, but they are a signal. Uh, first of all, they send a material signal to the environment. Like even if it's a drop in the ocean, we added a drop to the ocean uh, from our personal actions. We need a lot of them, so that, that's small. But it also sends a market signal. When you don't spend money for, on fossil fuels or you don't give your money to bad agricultural practices, you took away their money and you put it someplace else. That's a powerful market signal. And it's a powerful political signal. It's a powerful social signal. I would say this is more important than voting. Um, but a lot of people, voting is important too. Your one individual vote may not seem like it matters, but we know that it does. Same thing with our individual actions at home. It's not the whole solution. We need everyone to vote, not just one person. Same thing with individual environmental solutions. Do what you can, but please don't harm your pocketbook or your family in the process a lot of the solutions to environmental issues, whether it's climate change or our impact on biodiversity or in natural resources, can begin by not wasting so much. So whether it's energy being wasted or food being wasted or water being wasted, start with efficiency. So in the food area, we usually begin with talking about like food waste, saying what, regardless of what you like to eat, uh, wasting it is kind of Kind of awful, isn't it? Because it's money you spent on food, you spent time preparing it, it's sitting in your cupboard, your refrigerator, whatever, and you didn't eat it. That's wasteful. 
And it turns out globally, about 30 to 40% of the food on earth is not eaten and is wasted. In rich countries, it's often near the consumer in our homes and markets and schools and offices. We can work to reduce that. In poor countries, unfortunately, a lot of it is closer to the farmer, or maybe it never even got to the market because of broken supply chains. So we have to work on that too. So food waste is really important, especially food waste in uh, meat and dairy products, because they tend to be so much more resource intensive. They take much more land, energy, water, and carbon to grow those things. We tend to think about food waste as like tomatoes and lettuce or whatever we throw away. I look at the meat and dairy products, actually, because they're way more important to the environment. But uh, think about all food waste, but especially, you know, fish, meat, uh, dairy, things like that, uh, to the extent uh, you're not compromising food safety then try to make sure we don't waste that. Smaller portions, take it home and eat it for lunch, share it with neighbors, share it with loved ones. Uh, Canning, freezing, lots of things like that are very, very helpful. The second is a little more controversial, but it's still, sorry, it's physics, it's true. Eating more plant-rich diets is automatically one of the best things we can do for the environment in most settings, not everywhere. Uh, There are parts of the world where, um, you know, kind of grazing animals, pastoral systems, things like this are the only kind of food available to some very, uh, especially poor countries, people living right on the edge. This might be the only thing that guarantees their food security. But for you living in Sydney or me living in the U.S. or something like eating less meat and less dairy is a huge win for the environment. Even if we eventually grow a lot of the stuff regeneratively, right now the fact is we don't grow almost any of it regeneratively. Less than much less than one percent of the world's food supply would be could be called regenerative or organic. So what we're eating is mostly commercial stuff, and the less we do of that, the better. Doesn't mean we have to give up eating meat and dairy, but uh, eating less and substituting plants could help a lot. And our doctors are telling us to do some of that too. So why don't we seize this as an opportunity to create new jobs, better communities, more healthy ways of living, and avoid planetary disaster? It requires that we get up in the morning and seize that opportunity, and we all have different roles we can play. But if we try these things out at home and we talk about them and influence the world around us a bit more and keep our votes and our dollars aligned with those values and those actions, then we start to have a big impact, and that gets to be pretty interesting. interesting. There we go. I hope you found that interesting, instructive, illuminating, and clarifying. Of course, if you did, please share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. Quick one before I let you go. I am often asked what supplements I take probably one of the most common questions that I get actually. So I finally got around and created an in-depth supplement guide, totally free, that you can download along with a bunch of other free guides at plantproof.com. Inside, it contains information about daily supplements for everyday wellness, along with performance supplements. The daily supplement that I personally take is a multi-nutrient called Essentialate by NutraKind. This is a product I formulated for NutraKind alongside their team that specifically contains the eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall a little short in. Omega-3s from algae, B12, vitamin D3 from mushroom, iodine from seaweed, calcium, zinc, selenium, and iron. The right forms in the right doses to complement your plant-rich diet. 
To find out more or subscribe to a monthly delivery, head to NutraKind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com. And use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off your purchase. So in summary, grab a copy of the supplement guide at plantproof.com. And if you are in the market for a daily multi-nutrient to cover your bases, head to Nutrikind.com and use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off. On that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for your ongoing interest in evidence-based nutrition. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.